Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, the Breaching Extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them. There are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left, and they are currently threatened by lack of prey, vessel noise, and water toxins. All these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Wirth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you all had a wonderful week. This year, I, or sorry, this year, this week, I am here with a William Carome. How are you doing today, William? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, so we're here to discuss your paper, The Long-Term Shifts in Summer Distribution of Hector's Dolphins um, in Correlation with an Increase in cruise ship tourism. Uh, But before we do that, I'd like to get to know you a little bit. Tell us about yourself. Where are you from? How'd you get into this line of work? Sure. Um, So I'm from Washington, D.C. Grew up there, landlocked, uh, except for the Potomac River for most of my uh, youth life, and then moved to Boston uh, for college. Uh, But I grew up spending a good amount of time going to the beach a couple weeks every summer. We would go to Cape Cod, um, a place called Wellfleet, beautiful place on the coast with both ocean and and bayside beaches. Um, And I was really fortunate to have the opportunity to go on whale watches out of Provincetown growing up. And so was always really interested in the ocean, but especially interested in whales and dolphins from these experiences up close with the dolphin fleet out of Provincetown uh, and researchers from the Center for Coastal Studies who were on board those boats doing interpretive uh, lectures and and really good sort of learning opportunities. And, and that got me really excited about it. Um, but I didn't really know that studying marine mammals, studying whales and dolphins was, was something that I could do uh, until I got to a semester abroad in New Zealand. Um, so I spent a semester during my junior year at the University of Otago where I met my supervisors for my master's, Will Raymond and Steve Dawson, uh, as well as Liz Sluton, and realized, wow, there's people actually doing this research. There's people here um, 
who are professors and researchers studying marine science, which wasn't really a thing at Boston College where I was for undergrad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of sparked my interest as, as I was already studying biology uh, to, to continue on and actually look a little bit deeper into marine mammals and something that I knew I'd always been interested in, but didn't really know there was a career path for. That's awesome. Um, so when you're not studying whales and dolphins, what hobbies do you have? What kind of things do you like to do? For sure. Um, I spend a good amount of time, uh, as much time as I can, (laughs) given the weather conditions over here, surfing, uh, rock climbing, uh, and yoga. So those are sort of like key core self-care things for me that keep me sane um, when I'm not out on the water or at a desk doing research. For sure. Um, Yeah, no, that's definitely important. Important to have a balanced life and then, you know, be active and have other interests. That's awesome. Do you have a specific type of yoga that you like or just general yoga? Um, Mostly just sort of basic vinyasa flow yoga. But recently we found an instructor here who um, does a great sort of 45 minutes of flow and then 10, 15 minutes of breathwork meditation at the end, which has been amazing. Nice. That's awesome. Um, so tell us about your study. What got you curious about the Hector's dolphins and their distribution? Yeah, absolutely. So like many of your listeners and, uh, before I began my semester in New Zealand, I didn't know what a Hector's dolphin was. Um, I had spent a good amount of time in the water, but I, I didn't really, um, have any idea what this species was. And then I got to New Zealand and realized this is an endemic species. It's only found around New Zealand. Um, and my supervisors, uh, Steve Dawson and Liz Sluton began a study uh, back in 1984, sort of exploring, looking into this species and seeing what's going on. They wanted to learn a bit more. Steve was interested in the acoustic side, so their vocalizations. And Liz was uh, studying sort of population dynamics, survival and reproduction. And they both pretty quickly realized that there was something serious going on. Um, they did a, a, a number of surveys around the South Island of New Zealand, and it became very clear that uh, many, many fishermen were uh, reporting catching these dolphins in nets. Uh, so it was very common for fishermen in gill nets and trawls to report catching dolphins in addition to the fish that they were hauling in. And so it became clear that that there was a problem there. Um, and from that, they realized that the, they, they through, through a number of studies, realized that the dolphin population had declined substantially. So Hector's dolphins are endangered. There's a North Island, in the North Island of New Zealand, there's a subspecies called Maui dolphin, which is critically endangered. There's only about 50 of those left. Um, and so I became interested in studying Hector's dolphins uh, which have a number of names. They actually have more names than as uh, and than any other marine species in Tereo Maori, which is the indigenous language in New Zealand, including Tutumarikurai, Pahu, Tupopo, uh, and Popoto. Um, they're very special Tonga species, which means they have a special connection to the indigenous people, uh, as well as uh, importance legally. Um, So there's uh, extra protections or extra mandates for protection of these dolphins. And so, um, and so I I knew that I wanted to study uh, conservation biology uh, close to the front lines. And I, and I found that this was a species where um, I could 
return to New Zealand uh, and and work closely with a with an endangered species. Um, and then specifically with my study uh, in 2011, um, so Akaro Harbor is where my study site was, um, which is on the south side of Banks Peninsula, which is just off of Christchurch. Um, and basically dolphin tourism began there in the late 80s, was increasing um, into the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, research showed that there was a relationship between tourism and the behavior of the dolphins um, done by Emmanuel Martinez. Um, and then in 2011, there was a, a earthquake in Christchurch, a deadly earthquake that caused substantial damage to the port, the main port for Christchurch, Littleton. And pretty much overnight, three days later, um, all the cruise ships that hadn't come into Littleton were rerouted to Akaroa. And so my study sort of brought all of that together, uh, taking the long-term data set. So we've had a continuous long-term study uh, at, at Akaroa Harbor at Banks Peninsula going for over 40 years or nearly 40 years now. Um, and so I was able to, we, we were able to look at the sightings during the last two decades and examine whether places in the harbor that were important to the dolphins sort of core habitat, whether those were consistent over time or whether there may have been some shifts related to increases in dolphin tourism or this major shift or major change in cruise ships coming in much larger numbers and larger sizes to Akaroa. Wow. Okay. So um, like you had mentioned, a lot of our listeners maybe don't know what a Hector's dolphin is. We do have listeners from like over 40 countries, but most of them are based in the United States and Canada. Um, so can you give us like a little brief description of what a Hector's dolphin looks like, where it hangs out, and if you any know anything about their social structure? Sure. So Hector's dolphins are the world's smallest marine dolphin. Um, they're, they only grow to about one and a half meters in length at maximum size. So that's only about four or five feet tall, four or five feet long. So they're, they're pretty small. They're, they're known for being cute. Um, then the other distinctive feature uh, with these dolphins is a rounded black dorsal fin. So most dolphins would have a triangular or hook-shaped fin, whereas Hector's dolphins are very distinct for a rounded black dorsal fin that's kind of shaped like a Mickey Mouse ear. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have very high sight fidelity. So that means that they don't go very far from where they're born during their life. Um, and so research has shown that they generally only live on average, along 50 to 100 kilometers of coastline. Um, and they generally don't venture deeper than 100 meters. Um, so they're, they, they live in a very small area throughout their life and they don't venture far from the coast, which means there's a very large overlap with humans. Um, and that means that they're exposed to a number of threats related to boats or pollution um, or coastal development. Um, and so they really are sort of a, a relatively urban dolphin in that sense. Um, and then in terms of social structure, uh, they live in what's called a fission fusion society. So um, they don't have set pods uh, that you might see with other species. They'll kind of be in groups of two to uh, maybe 50 dolphins, um, rarely seen alone. Uh, and then those groups may interact with another group of say 20 dolphins and they'll split off into two groups of 30 and 40 dolphins. Um, and so generally there's no sort of set structure. 
they come together and join larger groups and then they split off into smaller groups. Um, and we've also seen uh, research that suggests that often those groups are single sex at times. So either all male or all female um, and those social groups um, may have some sort of when those larger groups come together, there's definitely some reproductive activity that we see. Very cool. Um, so tell us how you conducted this study. Yeah, uh, for the last, um, going back to 1984, as I said, our research group's been doing the same standardized surveys at Banks Peninsula. So we do uh, what's called, so the harbor, <clears throat> Akadoro Harbor faces north to south. It's about 17 kilometers long. And we do a zigzag transect through the harbor. So that means we go sort of zigzagging through the harbor uh, from point to point. Um, so there's 17 points along our survey. And when we see a group of dolphins, we veer off, uh, just uh, record the behavior of the dolphins, record oceanographic variables, and then we also take photos. So the main core of our research is a photo ID study, this long-term photo ID data set, which can be used to analyze population dynamics and survival. Um, and for my research, I was mostly looking at the sightings themselves. So how many dolphins we were seeing in a given area. Um, and then I took those 20 years, uh, of data from 2000 to 2020, uh, during, uh, during our summer surveys and used a technique called kernel density estimation. So I broke each of the uh, I broke the 20 years of surveys into five periods based on increasing levels of tourism. So, um, and also before and after the increase in cruise ships, uh, and looked at from that estimation produces a heat map and it also produces, um, contours showing basically hotspots for dolphins. So it tells you the areas in the Harbor that are most important to the dolphins. And I was able to look at those both before and after the increase in cruise ships. And we saw a clear shift in distribution southward away from where the cruise ships anchored and towards the mouth of the harbor uh, during the latter period after the increase in cruise ships. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Very cool. So what sort of impact do you think this can have on the dolphins? Great question. So cruise ships um, and, and other vessels present uh, increase in noise. So that's the, the primary uh, potential impact that, that we think may have influence where the dolphins spend their time. Um, so cruise ships will uh, have, have noise from their engines running on arrival and departure, as well as while they're at anchorage when they need to maintain power for safety purposes. And then there's also uh, at Akaro Harbor, the cruise ships would anchor at, uh, at anchorage site and bring passengers to and from the wharf with tender vessels. Uh, and so that's another potential increase in the noises from these tender vessels shuttling passengers to and from the wharf. Um, other potential impacts from cruise ships include damage to the seafloor. So from the anchors and the chains uh, that, that are connected, connecting the anchors to the boats can drag along the bottom, as well as propulsion from thrusters on board the boat can cause damage to the seafloor. And that may impact seafloor species, benthic species. Uh, not necessarily that Hector's dolphins would eat, but it may have effects going up the food chain um, and may affect species that Hector's dolphins would eat. So damage to the seafloor could make the habitat around the cruise ship anchorages uh, worse for the for the dolphins. 
Um, and then lastly, uh, potential impact at Akaro Harbor. We also found that there were more tour vessel, tour boat trips run on days when cruise ships were in the harbor. And those boats, we know from past research, um, amount to about 80 to 90 percent of the interaction time with the dolphins. Uh, so it's possible that incre related increases in tourism to the increase increases in tourism related to the increase in cruise ships may have had an impact on where the dolphins uh, spend their time. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so obviously you studied this to figure out what's going on with the animals and the potential impacts. Um, are there any management efforts being put in place um, to maybe try to reduce some of these impacts on the dolphins? Great question, for sure. So we've been able to work closely with the Department of Conservation who funded the research. That's sort of the equivalent of the, the National Park Service um, that we have here in the U.S. Uh, over there, uh, as well as Environment Canterbury. So that's their sort of local environmental <clears throat> managers. Um, that includes the harbor master for both Littleton and Akaroa, um, who would be involved in decisions surrounding cruise ships. And so through working with them, also working closely with the, the tour operators, we had a number of meetings throughout my research, making sure we we're communicating my findings as we went and and just sort of keeping everyone abreast of what's going on. Uh, and those that collaborative environment uh, has allowed for us to make meaningful recommendations and recommendations that um, can actually be put in place. And so they've actually, uh, the, the cruise berth in Littleton, the timing of this is quite interesting. The cruise berth in Littleton um, that was damaged from the earthquakes has been rebuilt. Um, and during the, during the COVID-19 pandemic, there were no cruise ship visits to New Zealand for two years. Um, and so we're, the, the return of cruise tourism to New Zealand is, is actually happening sort of as we, as we speak at the moment. And they've put regulations in place to limit the number of cruise ships um, to, that, that will come to Akaroa and more cruise ships are being redirected back to Littleton. Gotcha. Okay, very interesting. Um, so what do you expect to see for the future of this population? Do you think that they can, you know, stabilize and increase, or do you think that they're just continuing to be at risk? Great question. So the main threats to Hector's dolphins remain to be fishing. And while, so gillnets and trawls and bycatch in those two fisheries is primarily the main threat to Hector's dolphins, but other threats do include disease and tourism. And around Banks Peninsula, some protective measures have been put in place, but those protective measures don't necessarily spread to all of the South Island. So there, there are some places um, that do still need more protection from, from fishing. Um, but the, the measures that have been put in place around Banks Peninsula were shown to be beneficial to the dolphins. So that population, um, was last predicted to be either slightly declining or stabilizing. That was a paper that came out back in 2012. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so uh, looking at survival and how that changed before and after a marine protected area was put in place or a protected area from fishing was put in place around Banks Peninsula. Um, and there's research ongoing right now by a brilliant researcher named Lindsay Wickman, who's going through the photo ID database and will be coming out with uh, research looking at how survival has trended since 
um, that last paper came out and and seeing how the population is doing around Banks Peninsula specifically. So that's our most well-studied um, sort of population of Hector's dolphins. Um, and that was last predicted to be either uh, stabilizing or, or still slightly declining, but it's unlikely that the species will recover uh, under current pop under current protection measures. Um, Ugh, yeah, that's not, that's not good. Um, how many are left? Do you know? Yeah, that's a good question. So around Banks Peninsula, again, that's sort of where we've most closely looked at. There's seems to be around one to 2000 individuals. Um, but the, the nationwide population was, was estimated recently to be about 15,000. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and are all the populations considered endangered, or is it just this one? Um, so all of Hector's dolphins as a species is considered endangered. Gotcha. Um, but the subspecies on the North Island, uh, Maui dolphin, which used to be found all around the North Island, but is now found only on the west coast of the North Island, there's only about is critically endangered, and there's only about we think fifty or so of okay. those dolphins left. Yeah. Um, and so what's happening there is that there's an isolated population that's been isolated for so long that's been considered genetically distinct. And mm -hmm. it's unlikely that dolphins from the South Island, um, given where they spend their time uh, and, and how deep in how, uh, it's, it's unlikely that enough dolphins would cross from the South Island to rescue that population. Um, given that they would have to cross the Cook Strait, which is a deeper channel than, than where they generally spend their time. Um, and similar things are at risk of happening on the South Island, where you have these sort of somewhat isolated populations. Um, so the West Coast of the South Island um, has its sort of own genetic, like not, it's kind of, I, I'm not well-versed in what determines a species to be a subspecies For versus sure. genetically distinct mm -hmm. population of the same species. But there's sort of four uh, genetically grouped species uh, populations on the South Island, uh, mm -hmm. one on the West Coast, one on the um, Northeast Coast, one on the East Coast of the South Island near Banks Peninsula, and then in the Catlins and on the South Coast of the South Island. And each of those populations, um, even within those, there are smaller groups that are separated far enough from other other. Um, other populations where there is some loss of genetic diversity and risk for small subpopulations, such as around uh, Otago and in the Catlins, to become genetically isolated, similar to what's happened to Maui dolphin. Um, and so that's sort of where comprehensive protection measures need to be put in place so that those um, so that those populations don't become totally isolated. That totally makes sense. Um, so for those of our listeners who might not know, what does comprehensive protection measures mean? Sure. So what we're asking for is removal of gill netting and trawling in all of Hector's dolphin habitat. So that's out to about 20 nautical miles offshore um, and out to the really the 100 meter depth contour. So out to 100 meters deep, we're asking for um banning of gill netting and, and trawling. And so some of that's already been put in place. Um, there's good information on the New Zealand Whale and Dolphin Trust website. Mm -hmm. um, 
I believe that's nzwelldolphin.org. Um, uh, and and um, yeah, so basically we're asking for, for protection for these dolphins out to 100 meters within their habitat. Nice. That makes sense. Um, awesome. Well, I feel like we covered the study pretty well. Um, is there anything that you would like our listeners to know that you maybe didn't mention? Um, yeah, basically Hector's dolphins are, are special, important species that, that I think a lot of people don't, don't know that much about, even within Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, they're more rare than the kiwi, uh, which is sort of a flagship endangered species in New Zealand. And I, I think that's a message that hasn't uh, necessarily gotten gotten across. Um, and, and so it's really important that we protect them uh, for the environment, for the, the health of the ecosystem, um, and, and also for their importance to indigenous communities. Um, and Basically, yeah, if you happen to be uh, out boating, whether it's in New Zealand or in, in the U.S., just keeping an eye out for dolphins and making sure you slow down to no wake speed when you're around a group of dolphins is, is really important. Awesome. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. Um, a question that I always ask people um, is what can we learn from the whales? But in this case, what can we learn from the Hector's dolphin? Good question. I mean, I, I'm thinking about it from the from the perspective of like, what can we learn from the dolphins themselves in a in a in a interaction with them on the water? But I think, um, basically, we 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 can learn. I think from from the dolphins and and what we've seen in my research that every action that we take and and how we interact with nature can have an influence on other species. It can have an influence on the environment on um, not just uh, immediately around us, but it can have an influence on our surroundings um, and, and that that can have knock-on effects. And so it's really important that the dolphins are thriving uh, both in Akaroa Harbor and, and around New Zealand. And I think being aware that the way we interact with nature can have these knock-on effects or, or may have effects that, that can inf influence whether or not species are here for us in the future or species are here in general in the future, not necessarily for us. For sure. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's a really good thing to think about. And this, you know, this podcast was deeply rooted with the Southern resident killer whales. So that theme is very transferable to probably many of our listeners here. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing your insight and thank you for being on the podcast. Um, I definitely learned a lot. I don't know anything about Hector's dolphin. So this was very <laughs> interesting to me. Yeah, thanks so much, Erica. I really appreciate you having me on. For sure.